Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Keir Starmer's got a great plan to win the next election, defending the woke agenda. He's basically said if you enter the culture wars, you must be a nasty, evil, desperate Tory. And everything will be calmer under Labour. Pro-China activists, meanwhile, spark outrage and order members of the public around at King's Cross Station. In a fresh free speech row, this might be a forewarning to life under Keir Starmer. And Britain experiences a conveyor belt of storms. One leaves and another one arrives. The havoc and chaos remain consistent, not that different to the current state of British politics. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got a huge show for you tonight to kickstart the week, and what a week it's proving to be already. We've got a bedtime story for you about Sir Keir Starmer, the snake charmer, and his friends. We've got an extraordinary diplomatic incident to report involving China and a boogie-woogie piano player. And we've got the latest from the Trump camp on the eve of the New Hampshire primary. And that's not all, of course. We'll watch a Hollywood celebrity eating snow and getting flamed for it. I'll tell you why our schools have gone net zero mad. And we've got all tomorrow's front pages as well. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. It's time to fire up the Maserati. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Coming up, uh, we're going to talk about Sir Keir Starmer and what a week he has had already. He decided that basically he was going to launch himself today at a new anti-woke agenda. He says that the Tories are making a big mistake. He reckons that everybody is, for some particular reason, making stuff up. Keir Starmer has lashed out at the Conservatives. He's accusing them, basically, of stoking the culture wars against charities such as the RNLI. Addressing a civil society summit, the Labour leader also defended woke bosses at the National Trust, which has faced a revolt after linking the buildings to the slave trade and attempting to force volunteers to wear gay pride rainbows on lanyards. Instead of seeing this as a model that should inspire us and drive us forward, the Tories seem set on sabotaging civil society to save their own skin. They've got themselves so tangled up in culture wars of their own making that instead of working with Royal National Lifeboat Institution, an organisation the late Queen was patron of for 70 years to find real solutions to stop the small boat, their rhetoric has helped demonise them. Instead of working with the National Trust so more people can learn about and celebrate the culture and our history, they've managed to demean their work in its desperation to cling on to power at all costs. The Tory party is undertaking a kind of weird McCarthyism, trying to find woke agendas in the very civic institutions they once regarded with respect. 
So Starmer's basically saying that everybody's making up all this woke nonsense and it doesn't really exist. The National um, Trust has never, ever produced a calendar that didn't have Christmas in it. Um, absolutely, the RNLI have never sent money abroad to help causes which some people might be a bit surprised that they're helping. And they've absolutely never, ever gone into French waters to rescue some migrants who didn't need rescuing so they can bring them to Dover. That's all made up, isn't it? Of course it is. To discuss this, I'm joined by Deputy Policy Director of the Centre for Social Justice, Sophia Warringer, Sophia, and Director of the Institute of Economic Affairs, Mr Mark Littlewood. Welcome to both of you. I mean, I'm not quite sure what Keir Starmer's on about here. He's making out that all of this woke stuff has been dreamed up by Tory party MPs who have been attacking the RNLI and the National Trust. Now, I don't know who he's talking about. There might be one or two Tory MPs having a go, but it's not as if, I mean, it's more likely that I'd be having a go at it. <laughs> Why is he having a go at me? You know, he probably knows better. But, you know, I don't know that there is this concerted Tory attack squad going around having a go at these great British institutions. I don't think there is, but I think the fact that he is wading into this so-called culture war mm. on these issues and using these institutions, he's doing the same thing that he's accusing yes, of his course. opposition of doing, which is weaponising institutions which are beloved and held dearly mm. by many people across the country. But I think what he is tapped into, and I do think that is a good thing, is understanding the importance that these charitable mm. civic organisations play in our community life. And he's realising with the looming fear and hope of a potential government coming into his hands, that actually there is a limit to what government can do. And these mm. institutions like the National Trust and like the RNLI and other civic institutions and small charities across the country actually have a huge role to play. And there's a limit to what government mm. can do. And he's saying welcoming that. Whereas previously, the Labour Party has been saying maybe government can do it all. He's now saying we need to roll back on that and explain and understand and appreciate what these small charities actually do. Yes, I mean, what's interesting is it seems to me, Mark, that what he's saying is he's putting these charities in the same box as the NHS. You know, don't criticise it. You mustn't criticise it. Because, look, the Queen used to be the patron and everybody loves them and they're really great and they do really amazing things. So if you want to be critical of them, then you must just be a horrible Tory bastard. That seems to be the, the underlying message, doesn't it? But, look, Mike, you, you said just a moment ago that there uh, doesn't appear to be some coordinated concern. I don't think so. I've not seen it. But there probably should be. Yeah. Um, the, the number of these institutions, the National Trust, uh, I know rather more about than the RNLI. I know some of the people involved in the Restore Trust mm. uh, movement who yes. want the National Trust to get back to its Because there is a row going on within yeah. the organisation, isn't it? And uh, we heard on your clip Keir Starmer saying... Um, why are they? Why are people decrying the National Trust? Why don't we help it celebrate our national heritage? Increasingly, the National Trust doesn't right. celebrate our national heritage. It apologises yes. for our na national heritage. So I, it's I also literally rewriting history, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think love that. Or certainly focusing on elements of history where there's a belief that Britain should apologise right. rather than feel proud. And I think there is a trend of these institutions being captured by a particular ideology rather than mm. being neutral, valuable pillars of civil society. Yes. And if that is the way that it's happening, if these groups are becoming politicised in some way or another, uh, then I think it should be called out. And really, the best way to be a charity in these sort of areas is to stick very rigorously to your lane, mm. to focus on what you're really good about right. and not to widen into some wider cultural war or political well, battle. Which is exactly what's been going on in all sorts of places, including, I would say, the civil service. Yeah, though I think those charities, maybe the majority of what they do is still true to their original mission. And obviously, the RNLI, their first purpose is to save lives. Yeah. And I don't think the majority of them are going out intentionally 
crossing into French waters. And even if they are, their purpose is to save lives. Yes. Their purpose no, is but not they are, they to are, pick up a foot. They are taking people from boats which are not sinking, putting them on their boats and bringing them to this country, which is an, act, an actual illegal act. People have said to me in the past, what's the difference between what they're doing and what lorry drivers used to inadvertently do when they jumped in the back of their lorries on the, on the continent and then came here illegally? Because the lorry drivers used to get prosecuted even if they didn't know they were in there. But you have to remember the RNLI is almost exclusively made up by volunteers. Mm. And those individuals who are manning the boats are doing a lot of very important work within British waters. Sure. The majority of what they do is incredibly important and must be supported. No, and I if get they're that. volunteers, then there's a limit to how much the charity can corral their actions. Isn't, isn't this the point, Sophia, that in, in many ways, and I'd even say much of what the National Trust does is good. But the problem is, when you sprinkle a bit of wokery on the top of yeah. what was otherwise a pretty tasty cake, the cake starts to taste yeah, pretty yeah. foul to most people. So, again, stick to those core principles mm. of what your charity is trying to do. Right. And that way, I don't think they need to be part of a Labour versus Conservative debate. People no. from all sides can just, you know, celebrate them and be glad for their presence. Right. But, I mean, I think we can all agree that the wokery does exist. It's not as though he's... I mean, he's basically trying to make out that this is all being invented by the Tories. And if it wasn't for them, there wouldn't be any of these conversations going on. When, in fact, everybody's talking about wokery now because people are sick to death of it because it happens everywhere they go. Whether there's a, you know, rainbow zebra crossing suddenly emerges in the middle of town, whether there's, you know, some ridiculous BBC drama where they've had to make sure that every single possible minority is represented. They couldn't possibly do Doctor Who anymore as a bloke. Oh, no, he must have some kind of transgender issue going on and maybe try a, a woman once in a while. You know, I mean, it doesn't stop. And for Keir Starmer to make out that it's been invented by the Tories, it's kind of bizarre, particularly if he's trying to appeal to the Red Wall most of whom hate wokery. It is disingenuous, also particularly when he then brings attention to it and right. stokes up the divide, which yeah. he's supposedly so against. So mm. that, I don't think, is something that he should be pursuing because he needs to get on with the business of presenting himself as a very sensible future government leader. Yes. And the fact that he's picking on these very small things, which are not, as you say, government policy mm. at all. He should be criticising the government for their policy and their proposals, not for something that he's made up that is actually something that the charities mm. are responsible for. Exactly right. And again, this whole um, attitude, as I mentioned, that you, know, you mustn't criticise things because they're so great and inspirational and, and brilliant. Well, it's such a bizarre yeah. way of looking at the world, isn't it? Well, that, that... Next, it'll be don't criticise the Labour Party because, <laughs> you know, we, we were formed to help the working man and woman of this country. Yeah, I think that's actually what worries me about this sort of culture wars, wokery, more than anything else, Mike. It's not that some people have rather different takes on history or on the past or yeah. on Britain than, than I do. It's that it's becoming increasingly dissuaded for people to express their honest opinions, yeah. right? Um, uh, I bet there are a lot of people out there who agree, Mike, with your view of the world. There are But a don't have a job where yeah. they feel they can express it. No. And that's what I object to most. Mm. I don't mind Keir Starmer having these views. And by the way, I wonder, I just wonder whether this is a taste of the politics to come. Mm. There's not much difference between the economic policy of the Conservative Party and the Labour Party. There is some, but it's, it's a cigarette paper yes. or two. This could be the big defining difference yeah. in politics, your take on culture in the years to come. Yes, I think so, because, you know, we've heard Rishi Sunak talk about 
some of the things he will do. I mean, I know that he quite often says he's going to do things that don't end up happening. But, I mean, he talks about, you know, de-complicating sort of the world of, of, of this country and making sure that people can't be stopped from doing things just because somebody doesn't like it mm -hmm. or because somebody claims they've been offended. Um, but the SNP have sort of entered the, the, the arena as well because we saw Hamza Youssef getting interviewed by uh, Laurie Kunzberg at the weekend in which his fabulous blunder was that he'd reduced... Um, the, uh, the reading and math skills of the Scottish uh, children's population uh, by reducing um, uh, the words that I think he meant to be saying increasing on. Um, but he says he's absolutely certain that Keir Starmer's going to be Prime Minister um, and he's sort of offering some kind of pact and having talks. I mean, Starmer in the past has said he won't do that, hasn't he? He has said he, I think he probably won't in public, but who knows what's going behind the scenes on those back channels. But for Humza Youssef, he's trying to get any goodwill that he can favour because he's looking at an obliteration of his party in Scotland yeah. and he knows that that's not good news for the party and the independence aim but also I think more importantly for him it's not good news for him because he's not had a huge success as being leader of the SNP really. for the last few um, months no. but I do think that Keir Starmer is in a position where he doesn't need to be making deals with anybody he just needs to be putting forward policies that are going to be judged by the general election at the next poll yeah. And he needs to be very careful about making promises to anyone that he will have to roll back Well, on. he does, because one of the things that's come up this week as well, uh, Mark, is, is the EU. And everybody knows or suspects, at the very least, that if it's not Starmer, there are plenty of people in his party who would like to see closer ties, who would like to see conversations going on, shall we say, you know, whether it's a trade um, sort of chat or whether it's about closer ties in some other way. Um, he's going to have to sort that out before the election, isn't he? Uh, I don't think that will ever be sorted out, not just before the election, but not afterwards, Mike. Bad, bad news for Mike Graham viewers and listeners. If you thought the debate about Brexit was finally over, it ain't. They love it. We are going to be going on and on and on about what our relationship yeah. should be uh, with the European Union forevermore. But I think you're right uh, that the Labour Party should, if they are to form the next government, should at least be a bit clearer about what those ties want to mm. be in advance. They have said they won't rejoin. But there's many different grades of relationship yeah, you could exactly. have that are a lot closer but fall short of Yeah, that. exactly right. And we've already seen quite a few of the European nations and even the EU itself on migrants' policy alone changing rapidly in the last sort of six months to a year. We've got the French today saying, you know, they're going to be much harder on, on illegal migrants. You have to live there for five years before you get benefits. All kinds of, you know, draconian measures which we were trying to do um, and which we somehow can't do. You might find a few EU countries in the future get on rather better with President Trump than with Prime Minister Starmer, well, the way they're going. Yeah, absolutely right. Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you both. We'll have you both back very shortly. Um, and we've got plenty to do tonight. You're watching the one and only Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, and we speak exclusively to Brendan Kavanaugh. This is an amazing story. The YouTuber and pianist who was threatened by a group of Chinese Communist Party members in London. I kid you not. Trust me, you will not want to miss it. back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. A fresh row was erupting tonight after a British musician was harassed for filming a piano set in St Pancras train station. YouTube appeared as Brendan Kavanagh was tinkling the ivories at the London train station when he was confronted by a group of Chinese Communist Party members. The interaction gets heated when the activists tell Kavanagh to stop filming, then accuse him of racism when he proclaims that Britain is a free country and that we are not in Communist China. Have a look at this. 
action into it. Oh, okay. Yeah, we will put a legal action really? into it. For what? We will. Legal action. I'm sorry, this is the but end of the conversation. This is all right, we're protecting, and that's it. But what right? I don't understand. Image right. Image right? Yeah, we're not sharing this are, image right. Are you right. from China? I, I, that's not a question. We, the only thing we are arguing is that yeah. We are protecting our own image, right? You're not sharing. But this, we're in public. Yeah, exactly. No, no sharing. So we're not allowed no to share? No sharing. Yes, no sharing sure. us. Share yourself, that's fine. No sharing us. Okay. No sharing. Please share me. Oh, yes. share you, yeah. So, <laughs> and if one day... But you like, see, the thing is, we, we're in a free... I'm really we're, sorry, we're on a schedule but, here. So, that, me too, but we're in a free country, mate. That's true. We're you not in communist China now, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. This is reasons now. We have no, we're not in communist China. We're in a free country. I'm sorry We're in a free country, mate. We can film where we want. You can call the police if you want. I'll be quite happy to call the police, you know. But listen, we're all free here, mate. This is free, but... <laughs> um, in a statement, the British Transport Police say we are aware of a video circulating on social media <laughs> of a disagreement in St Pancras Railway Station on Friday the 19th of January. Officers on patrol came across the incident and the situation was de-escalated. Uh, video of the incident has now gone viral. And about the centre of it, Brendan Kavanagh joins me right now, as well as Professor Eric Kaufman uh, from the Faculty of Common Sense. God <laughs> knows we need some of that from the University of Buckingham. Brendan, uh, welcome for, uh, to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, very different from the Independent... Yeah, uh, the People's Republic. Republic. People's People's Republic of China. Um, what an extraordinary event. I mean, first of all, I have to say to the guy, I'm afraid um, we're not in, you know, you know, are you from China? It's definitely a question, even though he doesn't seem to think it is. Um, they were, how did you know they were from the Chinese Communist Party? They were waving flags, right? Well, they were obviously waving communist flags. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the girl came up to me and she said, oh, we're from a Chinese TV station. Right. So obviously they're going to have connections with the CCP. Right. And uh, it just got very heated when I started questioning him. Clearly, this guy was used to being obeyed. Yeah. All right. And, and I what thought, were they worried about you filming? Presumably, you were just filming yourself well, playing well, piano. Well, they, they were extra. It, this was what's called the Streisand effect, which I've just recently learned about. When oh, yeah. you try and keep something secret, and by trying keeping it secret, it's actually blown. He's, this, this guy, the shouty guy, has become a YouTube star. Right. Yes. You know. Um, and they were waving around disclosure things in China. They said, no, no film right. disclosure. Right. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I haven't decided, you know, and uh, basically he just made a fuss about nothing and now he's a YouTube star. And yes. now we've created an international diplomatic incident with the Chinese and I do believe that MI5 are involved. Yes, well, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, Eric, this is quite an extraordinary <laughs> tale. I mean, on the face of it, when I first saw it this afternoon, I thought, this is ridiculous. And then, um, we managed to get Brendan to come in. But it is mad, isn't it, where people uh, from another country can come here. I mean, you said at one point oh, no. to him, um, well, imagine if I'd gone to, into China and decided to start telling I people know, in China what to they could film. I know, he wanted to turn St Pancras into the People's Republic of St Pancras. And I thought, no, no way, we're, we're in London. He was obviously used to being obeyed. And some, Chi some Chinese people have said, if, if, some, if you were shouted at that, like that in China, you'd be taken off to the camps and, you know, because that shout puts the fear of God you in you. You would be playing the piano again. Eric, yeah. I mean, uh, is this kind of thing... Common? I mean, do people from um, the Chinese government television agency go around London filming things which nobody's allowed to see? <laughs> well, I'm not aware of that. I, I know in, in different countries there is a sense in which you can't necessarily film in public. But I think what's interesting about this case with Brendan is that you've got the coming together of Chinese state authoritarianism yeah. with woke progressive authoritarianism, yes. right? So they, he yeah. was, first of all, accused of racism. They knew to accuse him of racism yes. because they knew in this society that suddenly keys into progressive authoritarianism, right. yeah. and then the police 
came in and took that very seriously right. because that's the highest value right. in the society. And I'm pretty no. sure that being yeah. uh, accused of racism when you've just said, are you from China, it's not really racist to say, are you from China, is it? Not at all, not yeah. at all. But the fact that anything which could be construed by the most sensitive person on the planet mm -hmm. as being racist is enough to put you in the dock. Right. And that's the way this ideology operates. And they, it's interesting that the Chinese, even the CCP, people know that they can weaponize. I mean, there's, and they do this all the time. I mean, in Canada, for example, again, where I'm from, you know, the Canadian, gov Canadian government and a bunch of activists were stupid enough to call uh, Canada's treatment of the native people a genocide. So yeah. when, when the international community in Canada says, oh, you're committing uh, atrocities against the Uyghurs, they'll just turn around and say, oh, bitch, you look at how you treat your native people. And right. then that's the end of the story. So right. we are kind of useful idiots for mm. these people. Well, that's true. And in terms of how it all sort of ended, I mean, you play the piano a lot in, mm. in St. Pancras, don't you? Because we had you on, um, not yeah, when was, you were in, on in person, but yeah. a few weeks ago, you had a problem with, with some of the police there trying to close the piano lid on you, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. I mean, generally, I don't go looking for problems, you know, but the thing How often is, do you go and play the piano there? I just go one, well, it's not just in St. Pancras, you know, it's wherever there's public pianos. I'm, right. I'm all about live music. I mean, I like uh, unscripted and not asking for permission, you know. I think there's too, mu too many musicians who ask for permission. It's all becoming a bit tame. So I'm a bit edgy. Yeah. I, I do public interactions. I do spontaneity. And um, sometimes the guards don't like it because, uh, you know, I might not follow the rules or I might move the piano slightly. And uh, I just, when somebody tries to enforce a pointless rule, I don't know, there's something in my nature, I just yeah. bristle, you know what I mean? Well, there is something weird about it, isn't it? They put a piano out there for somebody to play, and then if you start playing it, they tell you to stop playing it. Well, well, it's kind of a weird yeah, yeah, that, development in our <laughs> it, sort of it is society. A real, you know, I think it's just people want to ask, you have to ask permission for everything, yeah. you know what I mean? And this Chinese guy, the shouty guy, what I know, if you watch that video, it's all about their rights, my rights, yes. our rights, and it's all about what I couldn't do and what they could do, and I thought, oh, Don, yeah. this whole thing is about your rights, my rights, my rights, and you can't do this. And I thought, blimey, yeah. we are in London town, and I've got a bunch of Chinese people from the Communist Party telling me what I can't do. And I kind of just the old British yeah. uh, instinct. No, I'm, of, of I'm the same. And I'm I exactly like enough you. Is enough. I, I used to find this. I used to live in New York, and they used to film right. a lot in streets in Manhattan streets, you know. And they'd have all these runners, people who would be wearing those, you know, those kind of Ghostbusters ones like right. filming, and they'd wear those those kind of you know jackets with Ghostbusters written on the right. back, and they'd have some walkie talkies, and they'd stop you from walking, and they go, "No, you can't go down there." And I'd be like, "Well, I'm going. That's where I'm walking." This is, you know, my city. I live here. I'm walking down 57th Street, whether you like it or not. We're filming. I'm like, I couldn't care less. You know, I'm walking. Sure, you know, sure. and I agree with you that sure, you, should, yeah. you shouldn't be stopped. From, and also, they can't buy, you know, the, if they want to buy St Pancras Station, and yeah, yeah. close it off and film just for themselves. I'm sure there's a price oh, for that. The, the thing yeah. is, but you can't do it in public I and mean, expect nobody to look, pay attention. The thing is, they wanted complete privacy in a station where there was thousands of people. And, uh, you know, that everyone's there filming and uh, they want complete privacy. They don't want anyone filming them. They don't want to be known. And they were going around waving these yellow Chinese anti-disclosure things. Right. And <laughs> they said it's an extremely sensitive issue. The guy is very, very sensitive. I mean, for goodness sake, now he's a YouTube star. Right. And also he went... <laughs> he's I'm a on... YouTube star. Yeah. Now. He's been the recognised great... in the street. The, yeah. other, the other great <laughs> one was... Uh... baby. Yeah. The, the other great one was I'm on a schedule, like you care. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so... he, said, he said, I'm on a schedule. I said, yeah, I'm on a schedule too. And then when I questioned him again, oh, he, he suddenly started shouting at me again, the shouty bit, you know. Mm. So it was a comedy of errors, but it raises a lot of serious issues. It does. About yeah. stupid rules, authoritarianism, and also, um, you know, our own British culture 
how we've got to stand up to stupidity right. and just say no, you know, not well, be scared. Well, this is the brilliance of Brendan is we need more people like Brendan yeah. to Thanks, actually Eric. defend Disruptors. our freedoms. Thanks, yeah. Eric. Yeah, absolutely. I can't play piano, so that's one thing. This show is full of people. So how did it end? Did you leave the station before they did? Well, how it ended, Kerry, the the British, the piece, the the. British Transport Police lady was gave me a really hard time. She thought she was my mum. And uh, she said, I'm not allowed to say that they're from China because yeah. that was unacceptable. Yeah. She told me I wasn't allowed to film her uh, talking to me. I wasn't allowed to do it. And I just got sick of it. And eventually she didn't have a, a leg to stand on and she just walked off. And no. they all walked off. And they all and, walked off. And they all walked off and we just continued. So it was a basically uh, a storm in a teacup caused by the fact that I said no to the Chinese communist demands. Simple right. as that. <laughs> British people gonna, rise up against these I wonder where they're going to I wonder where they're going to be tomorrow. Who? The Chinese. Well, they're probably back in I don't know. Right. I, I think they were only they were only here. I mean the irony thing is that all these Chinese people they were in the station they were all wearing red. Yeah. The girl was dressed up in a red costume. They were waving red flags and they said we don't want anyone to look at us and no one to film us. Well, then don't do it in yeah. public. Like, hello. Hire a studio. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's I mean, a they, risk. Could, they could have hired a studio and just put an, a green screen up and pretended they were in King's Cross. Exactly. Or, or they could have worn masks and balaclavas. You know, <laughs> well, that, that, that would have been... Well, a march in free Palestine. I mean, that, that yeah. would have... That would have ex exactly, you know. But the point is, um, when the guy... The guy obviously wasn't used to being told no, no. right? And when I stood up to him, he said, What's your name? Who are you? And he was questioning me like we were back in China and I was right. in the camp. But, I mean, to be fair... <laughs> and, uh, it to be was fair... Totally, I thought, oh, my goodness, I feel sorry fair, for the Chinese. There's plenty of people, though, in this country who behave like that, as, as, as you saw before. You know, there's plenty of people who would shut you down. Not as bad not as that, not as bad as that, Mike. I've not never, as bad, but I, you I will mean, get people asking you questions and saying you can't go there, mm -hmm. can't go that way, can't go you, this that, way. That is true. You know, well, I mean, well, that's bad, that's, isn't it? Well, that's the point, that this the, the Chinese state authoritarianism and the kind of progressive institutional yeah. authoritarianism coming out of the West yeah. have certain areas of overlap, don't yeah. they? It's an unholy wedlock yeah. between political correctness and authoritarianism. Yeah. And that Chinese guy, the shouty guy, weaponized it. You know, he, he used the R word, you know. Mm. You're, once you say you're racist, then the, the British police just melt. Yeah, yeah. You know, they just melt and... You're lucky, actually, just... you, you didn't end up in the back of a police van. You, you reckon? Know. You reckon, yeah, I'm but, like... you know... Non-crime hate incident. <laughs> yeah, non-crime hate incident. Oh, no, or, I know, know, but it was so ludicrous. Look, I'm just glad, Mike, that I actually had it filmed because if I told, if I narrated this, people would, yeah. wouldn't believe me. But the fact that it was on a live stream, we live streamed the video, it was completely spontaneous, and now the world has seen it. If I had narrated this, no one would have believed it. They wouldn't it. believe you. They wouldn't mm. believe and it. And they so... can watch it on YouTube, should they so wish. Absolutely. Watch it on YouTube. It's gone all over the world. Now I've got people in Taiwan using it. I've got people in Hong Kong using it. I've, I'm on Fox News tomorrow. Right. This is this has created a diplomatic uh, incident with the CCP. CC, uh. The CCP are trying to get it removed, and CCP YouTube have left it up. Right. We are fighting to keep the video up. Go and watch the video. They want to take it down. Everyone go to YouTube and watch it and spread it because the CCP have sent in a privacy complaint. It's not going down, baby. We're keeping it up. Very good. Great to see you. Uh, Brendan Kavanagh, uh, we're going to have you back, I think, Eric, in a little while. So thank you very much indeed for coming in. Keep up the good work. Um, where are you going to be playing tomorrow? I think I'm having a week. I'm keeping a low profile. <laughs> okay. for the low profile, yeah. <laughs> leave the country for a while. Yeah. Uh, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, Britain is in the thick of a dangerous storm. Conveyor belt. One leaves, another one arrives, unlike the trains. The havoc and the chaos remains constant. And this week, we've got Storm Aisha emerging from behind the curtains. Nick Ellaby's coming up next with the latest report.
Strong winds and heavy rain from Storm Isha have cancelled trains and flights, as well as leaving tens of thousands of homes without electricity. In Scotland, an 84-year-old pensioner has died after the car he was in crashed into a fallen tree. Uh, and there were other unfortunates as well over the course of the last 24 hours. Our correspondent, Nick Ellaby, sent us this report from East Sussex ahead of some more bad weather tomorrow. Evening, Mike. We've been out in the worst of the winds for Storm Isha for you today, but the real headline for this evening is that we've got a new storm coming in. So tomorrow and Wednesday, Storm Jocelyn has been named by the Irish Met Office and that's bringing with it new warnings for wind and for rain. So there's actually an amber warning from tomorrow afternoon across North Scotland. Some seriously strong winds there and more yellow warnings for rain as well on Tuesday, especially across the north of England, North Wales, Northern Ireland, and a lot of those areas still quite badly disrupted from Storm Isha. So we've seen serious gusts Sunday night and into Monday morning. 107 miles an hour was recorded on Tay Bridge up in uh, near Dundee and then 99 miles an hour in Northumberland, 90 miles an hour in North Wales and on the Needles at Isle of Wight just, uh, just a few miles down the channel from where we are at the moment in Sussex, 86 miles an hour. Here on the cliffs near Beachy Head in East Sussex the UK's highest chalk cliffs. We've just come to get a feel of the wind, uh, but most of that real bad wind from Storm Isha has died down, but strong enough to put off the dog walkers. We're not far from the edge of the cliff here, so I didn't see any dog walkers out this morning. Can be quite dangerous, so uh, usually we do see them when we're out and about. Uh, but a lot of homes without power still and to transport disrupted. The authorities have been working to get all those many thousands of thousands of homes that without power overnight into this morning back on and also the train companies working hard to clear those fallen trees off railway tracks particular problems up in up in Scotland and that takes hours and hours to clear some very sad news as well an 84 year old man lost his life in a, in a car he was a passenger in near Fife in Scotland when his car crashed into a fallen tree so lots of debris still around on the roads and the rail network so that's still something to be uh, looking out for especially as those winds return with storm jostling into tomorrow and wednesday mike so the worst of these storms not over storm jostling will be the 10th named storm this cycle that means we're only one away from the record which was back in 2015 2016 where we saw 11 named storms in the august to august cycle so mike this could be the stormiest season we've had since records began in the UK. Thanks, Nick. Uh, stormy weather indeed. Well, one of those passengers caught up in the flight chaos was Dom Biela, uh, who was travelling from Budapest to London. Believe it or not, it took 22 hours instead of two and a half. Dom, uh, welcome to the show. Tell us about your unbelievable journey home. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, it was kind of what started off as being the end of a very lovely weekend away in Budapest. Yeah ended up being a 22-hour nightmare. Um, so the initial idea was to kind of be flying from Budapest into Stansted. Um, but when we initially got on the plane, we were told um, that there was going to be, a, initially we were told an hour and 10-minute delay mm. um, because of the storms. And I had no idea there were storms at that point. Um, when we were kind of sat on the tarmac, I had a quick um, look online. Um, thankfully, though, it then shortened down to 35 minutes, so we were able to kind of get up and get going. But um, as we approached into uh, into Stansted, the winds kind of took over. And, um, yeah, the, the turbulence was an absolute nightmare. We tried to land twice. Um, and after the second attempt, they kind of bailed. 
and then they decided to divert us to Manchester. Right. Um, but then that's when it got a little bit, you know, long. <laughs> and how bad was it trying to come into land? Was it one of those where it was sort of jumping about and moving from side to side and then they came almost all the way down and then throttled up again? Yeah, essentially. So um, it was really kind of the flyover from Europe was completely fine. It was only when we started kind of um, gearing close to the UK mm. when it started again a little bit more turbulent. Um, when we started coming down to um, to kind of land and you could see the ground coming up, that's when it really kind of kicked up. Right. The worst part really for for us as passengers was when it kind of when the flight came back up again, um, because that's when you're kind of going through the clouds mm. and the turbulence really kind of kicks in again. And uh, that's when you kind of your stomach starts to churn because then you're the the, the plane was flying all over the place and right. darting all over. So yeah. Yeah, troublesome. So you got to Manchester. What happened next? Um, so we've kind of left stranded really by Ryanair. So um, we were on the Sorry tarmac for laughing, in Manchester. But it's, it's like that movie, isn't it? Planes, trains, and automobiles. But carry on. Yeah. No. Essentially. So the the problem that we mainly had was when we landed, we were kind of sat there for three hours, and we had absolutely no communication. The pilot wasn't kind of making any kind of announcements. Right. The only communication that we were getting is from people. Um, standing near the pilot, trying to get some information from the kind of staff and right. trying to get anything from there. We had no water. There was no um, kind of food. Right. There was nothing. Um, and then there was, because of the turbulence and the kind of the experience that it was, we had someone who passed out. Right. Um, so she was initially God. lying on the floor when we were coming into land. Right. Um, right. And, and, there was a, and there was a pregnant lady on the, on the flight as well who had to get escorted off. Right. Blimey. So, I mean, you were sat there because there was no gate, presumably, to go to. You didn't know if you were going to take off again. And so after three hours, eventually something happened? So I don't know the full reasons to why we were sat there. Um, the kind of speculation was that Ryanair didn't want to kind of finish um, and classify the flight as being finished in Manchester right. because it then would mean that they would have to sort out transportation or hotels. Right. Um, so they wanted to fly back to Stansted and therefore, they could classify the flights being finished. Therefore, they don't have to look after the passengers. Right. Um, so we were then given the option of, if you want to leave the flight, you can. But if you leave the flight, then you're on your own. Yeah. They're not going to support. They can't financially give us anything. Um, but then if you do some on the flight, then you will hopefully end up back in Stansted. But then the people who did, there's probably about 80% left. 20% stayed on. Um, and where, I later found out through X. Um, that the people who then stayed on the flight when they were going back to Stansted actually ended up back in Budapest because <laughs> the plane tried to land um, and oh gave God. up and then flew back to Budapest. Right. And you had a few choice um, messages. We looked through some of them. Yeah. So, uh, so we've been showing some of them, but obviously we've had to censor them to some extent. But, I mean, I was watching last night. Um, there's a, um, there's a, a, a Twitter account called Flight Radar 24 I don't know if you saw any of that, but there was incredible yeah. pictures of these, you know, um, planes just flying round and round and round over Gatwick, planes that had left Dublin to go to Manchester, had gone to Manchester and then gone back to Dublin and then tried again and gone back to Belfast. I mean, it was a real night of chaos. And, I mean, I suppose, I mean, we make jokes about it all the time. I don't know why people are joke, have problems with, with, with storms. But, I mean, you might say if they'd known the storms were that bad, they probably should never have taken off, should they? Well, that's essentially what all the passengers were saying. So we were kind of in agreement that the flight should never have happened. Um, or if it were to happen, the thing is, storms do happen. And kind of all the passengers were kind of aware of that. I think the main 
issue really came is the way that Ryanair kind of treated the passengers. We were hemmed in that plane for three hours, no communication, no nothing. And then when people got off the flight, there was absolutely no help for them. Um, and then as of literally an hour ago, we got an email from Ryanair just basically saying, storms happen, thank you for job flying with us. Um, so they've kind of washed their hands with it and uh, want nothing to do with it. Right. So, uh, yeah, the, the kind of accountability, accountability for it is just non-existent. No, I mean, they'll probably say, well, it's because we're a budget airline, we don't have that kind of money, and that's why we can charge you so little for where, for where we take you. But, I mean, you ended up um, getting a bus followed by a train. I think your final um, social media post was of a rather sorry-looking sandwich when you finally got home. <laughs> yeah. um, what was that, and how much did it cost you? Um, so in the end, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but when we got off the flight, the, the kind of queue for passport control was huge. Right. Um, so my partner and I, we were kind of working out, well, how do we get south? Um, so there were a few National Express coaches, but obviously they were selling out quite quick. Yeah. Um, so we just had to kind of go in for the earliest one that we could. So we landed at around, we got off the, the plane at around midnight, um, and then we had to camp in the uh, airport till 4.30. That was our first coach. Yeah. Then we, that, we got a coach down to Birmingham and then we had to get another coach down to London and then obviously the trains. So, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a long, sorry cool, stay. blimey. I mean, but you still had a nice time in Budapest anyway. Oh, yeah, I'd recommend it for anyone, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe try and avoid right now. Maybe go in the summer when it's not quite so stormy. Well... But yeah. listen, um, Dom, great to talk to you. Glad you got back safe and sound. Thank you very much indeed, um, Dom Biella there. We're talking about how, what a nightmare, 22 and a half hours to go a journey that would normally take two and a half. Absolutely extraordinary times. And there's more of it probably coming up over the course of the next couple of days as well. Uh, you're watching the Supreme Independent Republic of Mike Graham coming up after the break. Broke councils are seeking £1 billion extra in funding. I suspect mismanagement, of course, and as always, we the people suffer, as this may throw promised tax cuts out the window. It's all coming up after the break. <laughs> Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Take You the Mic. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was a man called Keir. He lived in a nice house in quite an affluent part of London. He got on well with his neighbours and he often talked to them over the garden fence. Keir would tell stories about his parents. He spoke proudly of how his father was a toolmaker and his mother worked in the National Health Service. It made him feel like a part of something, but he wasn't quite sure what. He worked as a human rights lawyer for a while. Some people said he defended some pretty ghastly people like terrorists and anti-Semites. But Keir persevered. He even travelled to foreign countries to stop killers and rapists from being sentenced to death by their own judges. One day, Keir met another man called Andy Burnham and decided to change careers. He wanted to become a politician, you see, so he stood for election for the Labour Party in Holborn and St Pancras in 2015. And he won. He couldn't have been happier. He then decided to back Andy to be the leader of the party. But unfortunately, Andy lost. Then he found a new friend who became a big influence on his life. His name was Jeremy Corbyn, and he had won the leadership race. Over the next four years, Keir and Jeremy were inseparable. Keir even campaigned for Jeremy to become Prime Minister. That was when he wasn't campaigning to stop Brexit from happening, even though the British people had voted for it. But in 2019, things took a turn for the worse. The Labour Party were crushed at the ballot box. 
their worst defeat since the 1930s. Keir decided he could do a better job. So he ditched his friend Jeremy and took over. After that, whenever he was asked about Jeremy, he said they were never really friends and that he'd only supported him because they wanted to win an election. Now Keir wants to win another election and he's willing to say anything to do it. Today, he's got some new friends, the National Trust and the RNLI, the lifeboat people. Keir thinks the nasty Tories have been making up stories about these two British institutions to make out they are too woke. Well, they are. That's if you consider helping to bring illegal migrants to shore in Britain from French waters or producing a calendar without Christmas in it. Today, Keir thinks it's a good idea to make charities and other organisations immune from criticism, just like the NHS he loves so much. If you're having a go, he says, you must be desperate and divisive. Keir wants a society of service and a national renewal. He's obviously been listening to the wrong advice, again. Because people in Britain are sick to death of the wokest dictating what we can do and say, sick of seeing rainbow flags and everything from zebra crossings to police cars, sick of watching freeloaders coming to this country and getting for free what they have to work for, and sick of watching TV full of nonsensical storylines and ludicrous characters, sick of diversity, equity and inclusion targets as well. Keir, of course, is very mixed up because only a few short months ago, he couldn't identify what a woman was. Now he thinks most of them don't have penises. Bless him. We'll bring you the next chapter on Keir and his new friends very soon. Now, dozens of MPs, including more than 40 Tories, have written to the Prime Minister demanding extra funding for councils in England to avoid big cuts to services. The group say they are exceptionally concerned at the measures many local authorities are planning as they try to avoid going bust, including raising council taxes and cutting services. Joining me once more from the Faculty of Common Sense at the University of Buckingham, Professor Eric Kaufman. Eric, welcome back. Um, I can't help but uh, assume... Uh, probably correctly, that an awful lot of the money that has been wasted by these councils was spent probably on wokery, uh, was spent probably on diversity and inclusion, and was probably spent on net zero. There is a lot of waste in councils. And yeah. So, you know, if there's a request for more money, there's also got to be accountability. So right. we need more accountability, and you're right. So local councils, for example, are putting all kinds of requirements, in many cases, on local schools... Right to move their curricula in a direction of race and gender ideology. Yes, and we heard that story at the weekend, didn't we, that so many schools are now being told to ease up on the phrase boys and girls because it might be problematic. Right, and some of this is, is stipulated by councils to the local schools, so right. they, the schools must obey this dictum, mm. largely. And, yes. and, that's, and that's where the energies are going. So it's not to say there's no case for giving more money to councils, but surely there's got to be a process of accountability, and that's what seems to be missing in this story. Well, this is the thing. I mean, they always seem to find money to spend when they need to spend it on something that they want to spend it on, right. and they always threaten uh, to pull the plug on things that are essential services, like, you know, bin <laughs> collecting, recycling, you know, all of the things that people actually expect them to do funding schools, but they're not actually um, improving those services, but actually making them worse. Well, yeah, I mean, if, you know, obviously every sort of identity group month that comes up, they want to go all in on, and that doesn't seem to be an issue. Mm. But somehow, yeah, you're right, neglecting these sort of unglamorous parts of their job. It's not to say there is maybe no case for, for providing more money, but again, I think we have to look a lot more closely at what they're doing. I worry that the public sector in general has just got too much money because they've got used to just spending it 
and when they're told suddenly, well, you actually can't spend that this year because we haven't got it, they sort of don't know what to do. They're kind of like stuck like rabbits in the headlights because they've <laughs> only ever just spent the money that they've got in order to make sure they get it again next year, right? Yeah, and, and, and also there is that, that if you don't spend it, you're going to lose the budget, yeah. that mentality. Right. So that also tends to drive this kind of uh, waste. But yes. yeah, again, there, you know, it's again, not to say that there aren't cases where councils are underfunded, but there needs to be accountability, and that just seems to be missing in the story. It really does. And, I mean, it, of course, a lot of it goes back to that original ruling, which was that they were not paying women the same amount of money as men, um, which was originally an EU ruling, um, which Tony Blair, I think, started and then realised that an awful lot of the councils that were going to get caught up in it were actually Labour councils, which were supposed to be all about equality, <laughs> but it turned out they weren't paying people equally. Well, yeah, and of course, this, there, there are all kinds of gradations here. I mean, it's one, one thing to pay equally for the same job. Yeah. But then once you get into this stuff about equal work of right. equal value, yes. it's entirely subjective, right. and, and I think it's nonsensical. It probably is nonsensical, but it's got them into a very bad place. Speaking of, of the wokest agenda, what did you make of Keir Starmer's um, kind of day today where he said he was going to set up this big, huge kind of, you know, set-piece speech? But when he got right down to it, there wasn't much to it, really. Well, no, I mean, this, I mean this, this whole idea of these institutions sort of hiding behind their established brand. Yeah. Um, but actually, behind that brand, they're sort of taking apart the mm. ethos. Because a lot of what this revolves around is the ethos of an institution. Yeah. So if, if, if you have a, a government building and you have a union jack and you replace that with the Chinese flag, right. everyone realizes that that's a big deal. Right. And that sets the tone in the entire institution. Yes. So even though the National Trust or the RNLI aren't spending most of their time talking about slavery, for example, mm. the fact that that is the dominant ethos, the highest value in the organization right. is really important. Yes. So this is what people need to focus on. It is not just the fact that they spend X hours a day on slavery and, and atonement and beating themselves right. up. It's about what is the sort of culture and the ambiance mm. that that creates in the organization. Yes. It's like removing the flag and replacing it with another Yes, flag. and that's the problem, isn't it? Because instead of kind of concentrating in the National Trust case on making sure that the properties are properly looked after, they're easy to access, they've got a decent cafe attached to them. So if you take, as I used to, when my kids were younger, I used to go to a lot of these National Trust properties, and quite a lot of them were quite badly put together. They were very expensive if you were going with a couple of kids as well. And if you, had, and you ended up sitting down and having some tea and crumpets, you know, it would cost you an arm and a leg. And, you know, an awful lot of the people were quite rude. There weren't very many helpful people around, you know. And instead of concentrating on making it a better experience for people, they're too busy now re-educating you. Well, yeah, I mean, and of course, I think that, you know, I've had mixed experiences, but the bottom line is, regardless, there always was an, an ethos in these institutions, yeah. and it would have been more patriotic and more about being a custodian of something that you've been that you've inherited and then you right. have to pass on to the next generation, and you take pride in that, and that was the ethos. And yeah. that's now being replaced by an ethos which is that we have to be maximally sensitive to groups that are categorised right. as oppressed. And anyone who complains, like we had that case today of the yeah. guy, the cellist, who's complaining about uh, Rural Britannia and mm. thinks it makes him feel uncomfortable. Well, sorry, um, it doesn't mean that everybody else feels uncomfortable. It also doesn't mean that you can get your way. But part of this, to me, is this kind of entitled generation who think basically, well, I don't like it, so it shouldn't be allowed. Well, of course, they've been indoctrinated in hypersensitivity to uh, race, gender, sexual minorities. That is the highest value that is a sacred thing and therefore you have to bow to that and it's just so second nature right yeah. so that if they see something that's even slightly uh offside right. then they're going to call it out and, and turn it into a big campaign and so, try and ban yeah. it 
Well, yeah. Well, that the, what you're trying, what they're doing there is they're banning any speech which might be seen as a microaggression yeah. or make somebody feel unsafe, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, and what that means is we have to shut down speech, and we also have to shut down anything historical that might be seen as offensive. Yeah. It really is incredible, isn't it? Eric, you're staying with us, I believe, so uh, sure. do stay with us. And, of course, um, we've got much more to come, including uh, a look at all the front pages, and we've got some of them in already. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we'll be speaking to Andrew Jenkins, MP, as Rishi Sunak receives at least 29 letters of no confidence. I wonder why. <laughs> Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com. And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. We're back. You're with Talk on TV. We're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up in this hour, after BBC journalists refuse to call Hamas terrorists, the Culture Secretary announces that its online channels will now be policed by Ofcom to ensure impartiality. The Duchess of York's second cancer diagnosis in a year, with Sarah Ferguson revealing that she's been treated for a malignant melanoma, and Ron DeSantis drops out of the running to be the next US president, leaving Trump on top. Sleepy Joe may get confused and pull out of the running himself. Now, those of you who are veterans of the Independent Republic know that I don't like to blow my own trumpet. But occasionally, I do need to point out the veracity of my predictions and the downright accuracy of what I say. Back in November 2022, Donald J. Trump declared that he would be a candidate for the Republican nomination for president of the United States in 2024. There were few people who gave him a chance. Not after the January 6 accusations of insurrection, they said. Not with all these lawsuits looming against him and even criminal charges. No way, they said. And not again, they opined. America had seen the tricks and the rhetoric before, said the experts, and he won't be back. The New York Times, the arch-liberal champagne socialist newspaper of choice, even made fun of the speech. Mr Trump, they said, repeated many familiar allegations and exaggerations about his own achievements, reiterated misleading attacks on political opponents and made dire assessments that were at odds with reality, they quipped, with all the humour of a fire and orphanage. In this country, we were similarly treated to the expert views of the usual media suspects and the commentariat, who all agreed that Donald Trump, a second time around, would be a terrible idea and would almost certainly plunge the world into even more chaos. Well, look where we are now. I'm here to tell you that I predicted back then that the Donald would be an unstoppable force, and so it has proved. This weekend, Ron DeSantis, once the great white hope from Florida and the supposed pretender to the Trump legacy, dropped out of the race and endorsed, who else? Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy already suspended his campaign, as did former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. So now that just leaves Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, who gets to have her final showdown one-on-one -on -one with Trump in New Hampshire tomorrow. She's the darling of the old Republican guard, pre-Trump, so we know how it's going to go. Even if she does better than expected, 
it's pretty much Trump all the way to the Republican nomination. And given what's happening in Ukraine, in China and the Middle East, it's easy to see why more and more European and British politicians are rooting for the Donald. The world was a much safer place, after all, when he was in charge. I was at a Conservative function recently and more and more of them want to see Trump back in the White House. At the weekend, former Prime Minister Boris Johnson said these words. Reasonable people can see that Trump is not actually a would-be dictator and they have come to resent what looks like legalistic ruses to ax him as a candidate. The more frenzied the effort to cancel him, the stronger he becomes. The more bitterly his enemies wage lawfare against him, the more unstoppable he seems to be. He finished up with, a Trump presidency can be a big win for the world. Well, amen to that. God bless America. Now, later on in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. Before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. We'll be talking about Keir Starmer today. Um, Harry Cole has got a piece in the Sun on page 10, the leader page, exclusive with Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. He says he's going to cut the red tape. He says, Labour is too nostalgic about the NHS. I will listen to patients and resolve it and reform it, he says. You can't just keep on pouring ever-increasing amounts of money into a leaky bucket. You've got to deal with the bucket itself. Well, finally, some common sense from the Labour Party. I think Wes Streeting, actually, is a far more um, believable character, a far more credible character um, than Sir Keir Starmer will ever be. But there we are. We'll talk about that coming up through the course of this hour. Despite Rishi Sunak surviving a rebellion over his Rwanda bill last week, reports have suggested several more Tory MPs have submitted letters of no confidence in the Prime Minister. According to a leading backbench backer of Boris Johnson, the total tops at least 29. And that MP joins me now, Conservative for Morley and Outwood, uh, the one and only Ms Andrea Jenkins. Andrea, very good evening to you. Welcome. Hi, it's good to see you, Mike. Nice to see you too. Long time no see. What's going on? Um, you know, the Tory party still seems to be sort of um, moseying along as though there's nothing really wrong. You know, the Rwanda bill passed and we're waiting for it to go to the House of Lords, where apparently I'm told it will probably also be passed. There may be a few things nicked off it, but at the end of the day, it'll get through. But it won't really matter, will it? Um. I mean, also, the Lords completely defeated the bill tonight um, with so many amendments. So when it comes back, um, Labour want to water it down even more and Labour in the Lords. So Labour clearly support it in the Commons of these amendments to vote it down more, water it down more. Now, um, I think what the issue is, Mike, is that you've got, you know, different groups within the Parliamentary Party. You've got some of those who you'll always get people like this greasy poll people who are easily bought off by promotion and they're sort of bought into the tent in a way. You, you get those who um, uh, see the writing on the wall and that, um, look, we've got to change leader, it's last chance saloon. And you get those who are rabbit in the headlights, Mike, who are, God, we've changed leader um, several times now and we can't go through this again. And if anything, they're paralysed and not know what to do. And as you've known, Mike, I've, I was the first person to put my letter in publicly um, back in November mm. um, to try and lead the charge. But I, th I, th I think that other people need to start putting their head above the parapet because that's what's really going to cause change. Yes. But if there are now 29 people, as far as you know, that have put letters in, has that been something that's recently happened, would you say? Is it, re is it as recent as since the Rwanda bill's been going through Parliament? 
Oh, no, I mean, I got told this um, a couple of weeks ago because, right. you know, people sort of, when you when you put your head above the parapet and you're outspoken, you start finding that people start opening up to you. They did when I had a whipping operation to try and oust Theresa May. Um, people was sort of opening up to me then, and you know, and I'll never in a million years divulge names because they tell you in strict. No, I wouldn't expect you to do that. Oh no, I'm not asking you to, Mike. So, but I'm saying so. Just I want them to realise that. Mm. And this was two weeks ago. My tally um, with what people have told me was 29. This is just people who told me not everybody is open and tells you, of course. Mm. And that was prior to the dire polling. That was prior to the Rwanda vote last week as well. And clearly we're hearing, we're seeing it in various um, newspapers as well, aren't we, that more has gone in yeah. as well. So, I mean, I've, I've, And we're I've, only, what, 20-odd away from that, that magic number, so yes. to speak. I mean, I've spoken to some Tory MPs who think that there's a, a, a sort of a hardcore, if you like, of these kind of one-nation Tories, I suppose you might call them, the ones who mm. don't like to look cruel and evil and nasty at dinner parties, who um, should probably be uh, kicked out of the party, but Rishi Sunak won't do it. I, I call them the Lib Dems, actually, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, there are these people, they say there's 30 or so of them, um, who the Tory party could do well without. You know, let them defect to another party. Why have them in a Conservative but, but also, party? Also, what's interesting, Mike, I mean, um, when we came back, um, you know, um, after after Christmas, um, I was even speaking to um, people. Um, um, yeah, it, it's only like two or three people I'm talking about here. Um, sat in the tea room talking about the situation. And three of these were one nation to the left of the party who... And really peed off and really frustrated. They see the polling, they start looking at their own seat and think, God, where are we all going to end up? So I, I think the tide is changing on that wing of the party with some of them as well. Possibly so. But, I mean, there are also others, aren't there? And, I mean, you could go on probably forever with these different tiers of, of members of the Conservative yeah. Parliamentary Party who have now convinced themselves that there is no hope, that it's all going to be over at the next election and there is nothing really that anybody can do. I mean, are you still hopeful yeah. that something can be done? I think having lived through um, the Theresa May years, um, Mike, and the never-ending Groundhog Day where she tried to get a deal through about five times. I remember it well. And look how bad the polling was then. Look how um, we lost all those seats in that Euro elections, which we shouldn't have even had because we should have come out of the EU. And... I think there's always hope. I'm quite a positive person. There's always hope. And I think the most important thing, though, is I'd like to see the right of the party unite behind one candidate when that time comes. Because yes. we haven't got time for a bun fight. The left are going to have their people, but we've got to unite behind one. Otherwise, if we can't get them on the ballot, then it'll just be an air to Rishi, won't it? And we, we want some common sense politics because let's face it i believe starmer is beatable even at this late late in the day because on the doorstep what i find is there is no love of starmer there they don't trust him especially how he backed corbyn right. twice again to number 10 we look at his speech today um about the national trust and um look how he kneels look how he couldn't even say what a woman is so people don't necessarily <laughs> like starmer on the doorstep so i think with the right leader and true Conservative policies, he is beatable. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what did you make of his attack on the Tories today? Because he was saying that basically it's all down to you. Uh, if it wasn't for Tory party invention, there would be no wokery. I mean, is he deluded? He thinks that yeah. it doesn't actually exist. 
I, I, yeah, completely. And I mean, I, I look back in Leeds where, you know, all the BLM was, was um, spray painting the um, statue of um, Queen Victoria. Yeah. And they got away with it with the police. You know, we, I've been on your show before. We've discussed two-tier policing system, which is not right. And um, what annoys me about Starmer is the fact that he tries to make out from his speech today that we are really trying to divide, the Conservatives are divide, but whose politics uh, are always divisive? The Labour Party. Yeah. How come they always try to um, play the class war, rich against poor, the haves and the have-nots? Every election, I remember John Major, he did a fundraiser for me years ago before he came out, obviously very remain um, in Brexit. Um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do it now, certainly. Um, but he was saying that even when he was first a candidate, Labour was keep using that line, we're going to privatise the NHS. Mm. They try to put fear into people yeah. and they are divisive. So what hypocrite Starmer is and the Labour Party. Yeah, absolutely right. What do you make of Liz Truss and what she's going to be doing? Because she's uh, started up a new movement called PopCon, yeah. which is launching, I think, next month. Um, I don't know whether you're going to be involved in that, but this is her attempt to sort of um, make conservatism popular again. Uh, it's a bit of a tall order at the moment, but do you think she can do it? <laughs> I think she can. I mean, I voted for Liz to be leader when, very sadly, Boris got ousted. Um, I like Liz, I like Boris, and I've got res uh, respect for both of them. I mean, Liz's policies was actually true conservative policies in my book, Mike. Yeah. And I think if anybody can do this, watch... Um, showing what real conservatism is about. I think she can. And yeah. let's face it, it was a parliamentary party who was ousted. It wasn't party members. It mm. wasn't the country. So I, I think good luck to her. Um, we, we need all hands on deck at the moment to, to show what real conservatism is about. And I think, you know, she epitomises it with, look at her manifesto against Rishi. Um, it's low-tax conservatives. She knows what a woman is. She's, she was very anti-woke. And, um, yeah, so I, I'd like to see more of that, more policies like that from our own party. But if she launches this organisation, doesn't that kind of set the Conservative Party into two and, and basically promote one side of it as against the other? No, I mean, it's always been two parties. Look at the Thatcher years, Mike. We both lived through that, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's always been two parties. It's always had the, the lefty wets and the centre-rights and um, I'm proud centre-right. And um, so it's always been there. I mean, look at the Labour Party. They're the same as well. Mm. Um, it's I think political parties, with especially with the two main parties, they are like a coalition in a way, aren't they? between left and right and but i would like to i'd like to see our conservative hq reform and just um let the right-leaning candidates stand in election um that's what i would do if i was party chairman yeah well that's the problem isn't it there's too many um not right-leaning members of parliament and there's too many yeah. people perhaps being selected for the party who shouldn't be selected yes oh completely oh definitely i mean um I look at some colleagues and do think they belong in the Lib Dems, as I said earlier. And, um, and I wonder how some get through this election um, because the majority of um, party members um, are more centre-right, are more Thatcher-right Conservatives where Liz Truss's policies went down really well. So, um, yeah, so God knows how they got through, um, but, but they do. There's... Um, 
There's people like that in both parties, isn't there? Yeah, there absolutely is. Well, Andrew, good to talk to you. I'm sure there'll be plenty more to say between now and whenever the election is. Andrew Jenkins there, uh, MP for the Tory party, uh, from the centre-right of the Tory party, uh, as she says. Right now, though, we've got some breaking news. This just in via NBC, the US and British military are carrying out their second round of strikes against targets in Yemen. According to defence officials, the strikes are being carried out by manned aircraft and firing from ships. The last round of strikes against the Houthis, of course, was on January the 11th. We'll keep you updated on all of that uh, as it happens. Um, moving on, Talk TV recently revealed that nearly 130 people each day are prosecuted for failing to pay the bonkers BBC licence fee. And the Culture Secretary seems to think it's bonkers too. She expressed her frustration on Talk Today this morning. Here's what she had to say. I have said uh, that I don't agree with criminal prosecutions uh, in relation to the BBC. Our powers are limited in order to change that. Uh, as I mentioned, we can only make fundamental change at charter review periods. But I have said at the next charter uh, review period, um, I will look at those criminal prosecutions. Panel is back with me again. Deputy Policy Director at the Centre for Social Justice, Sophia Warringhead. Comedian and broadcaster Dave Chawner has joined us and Senior Economic Fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs, of course, Mark Littlewood. Welcome uh, to all of you once again. BBC can't get a break, can it? I mean, not that for me to defend the BBC, but, you know, they're constantly in the firing line. Uh, we hear today that uh, uh, they're going to be now regulated by Ofcom because they've been too Im uh, not, Im not impartial enough. And now we've got the Culture Secretary saying we're going to look into whether they can actually continue to prosecute people. I mean, I happen to think they shouldn't prosecute people for not having a licence, but um, it's not good to be in the BBC these days, is it? Well, the law is, as it stands at the moment, is obviously that you need a licence to be able to watch any kind of TV mm. like the BBC. So the law is being carried out as to what it stands. The question of whether that law should be changed and be reviewed, obviously, the Culture Secretary is saying maybe that's part of the new charter review when that comes up. Yes. I think it's a valid question. People consume their media in all sorts of ways now, and not least just through the BBC, which maybe had more of a monopoly before. So I do think it's probably right that we assess in a broader term how people consume their media and their news and their information yes. and whether they pay for what they want rather than being forced yes, to Yes, but I mean, the people that they've been prosecuting, as we revealed last week, tend to be people who are vulnerable people. They're suffering from sometimes terrible diseases. They're suffering from dementia. They don't even know when the next, you know, payment is supposed to be made. And they're taking these people to court mm. and they're fining them up to a 1,000 quid. I mean, it's not right, is it? I Dave, thought I mean, most of them... I'm guessing most of them would have been students because we all just used to lie. We just used well, to say we've well, got yeah, one. Well, yeah, but they don't they get the shit. These are a lot of the people that get done are older women, actually, because really? you know, they're living alone, they don't get around to paying, they haven't got the money or they're, they're ill, they're not able to do it. You know, it's a pretty shocking thing for the BBC. You know, they've got Gary Lineker over here telling us all to save everybody in the world. Uh, meanwhile, oh, never mind, let's just go and prosecute some grandmothers down the road because they haven't paid their licence. There was a heartbreaking um, kind of pre-sentence report application that was mm. written by someone who had that charge made against them and just talking about the circumstances of which they lived and which the, the kind of chaos yeah. of their lives right. and the difficulty that they had and the fact that this prosecution would be brought against them. So obviously there are always those hearts-wrenching stories. Right. But like, that's, that's not the only bill that you... Like, if, if there's someone in that position, that's not the only bill they have. Right. How do they pay their gas, their heat, their electricity? Don't. They probably don't. Well, OK. But the gas people have been stopped from coming in and yeah, cutting it off. Yeah, They're yeah. not allowed to do that anymore. Mark, I mean, you know, this is a real stain on the BBC, isn't it? It is. Look, I, I think I'd say this, there, that uh, it's because our whole approach to television policy is 30, 40 years out mm. of date. If you are going to have a licence fee, 
I guess you need to have some mechanism enforcing it. Otherwise, no one will pay. Right. And if you are going to have a public broadcaster that we all need to pay for if we own a television set, which is practically everybody, then I guess you can expect big arguments about whether it's biased or not and whether it should be regulated by Ofcom or not. But in my view, we should have none of these things. No. Uh, the BBC can be the television equivalent of the Guardian newspaper, yes. which none of us are obliged to pay for. Uh, it can stand well, you mean on its make own it into a charity? It can decide, yeah, it can decide <laughs> its own model. And if you like it, you should be able to subscribe to it like uh, any other television channel. Or yeah. it can be advertising-based. Or a mix. Yeah. We've got to get away. All of this made sense 50 years ago when television was in a different place. Mm. And if you broadcast TV signals, everybody around the country could pick them up. You couldn't broadcast to one household without the neighbours being able to get it with a coat hanger. That has now gone. And we are used to online services like Netflix or sports channels or whatever, and a multitude of choice where we pay for what we want to watch. And the BBC should be placed in that situation. And I think if you set the BBC free, it will improve. Well, I mean, I think bits of it will disappear altogether yeah. because not all of it is financially of, viable. That's right. And I, 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 that's I, I don't see. criminal prosecution is, good, is a good look, but I think there should be a proper punishment. Like, you should have to watch all of Mrs Brown's boys. <laughs> yes. That would be a much yes. more of an incentive. Exactly right. Like, that would genuinely put the fear of God in people. Yeah, but, I mean, clearly there are people employed by the BBC going around chasing people for money. It's by the Which, TV licensing authority. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, they're in hoc. I presume they're hired by the BBC to do what to they do. It, they're yeah. not. They aren't employed by the police, are they? I mean, they're a separate sort of laws of themselves. I mean, I can't imagine this is like worse than being a bailiff yeah. knocking on somebody's door. Pretty similar saying, to being a bailiff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to be real scum of the earth to do that job, don't you? And it's also... Worse than being a I, I like how you said that while looking at me. You said well, the word scum of the earth and well, all that. You're thing. the guy that's here to represent the people, you know, I'm that not, you I'm say love you and that, you know, you're a left-winger, so therefore you love everybody else. So, you ah. know, you should hate authority, shouldn't you? Freedom and love, yeah. mate. Well, we just used to... As I say, when we were students, we used to get people knocking on the doors and everyone... We, we just used to... Someone circulate around what the legal law yeah. was and we just never used to let them in. Well, you don't have to open the door. I mean, that's but the thing. The, tr the, the thing, truth is, you know, stu students generally are a lot harder to track down. They're moving dorms. They, they're oh. not in the permanent addresses. If you they're never awake. to try and enforce... <laughs> yeah, that's more it. Bell goes, bell's broken. Never answer the door, still in bed, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So if you actually are trying to force it, you're probably looking for people who've been at the same address for yeah, decades. Yeah. It's much more easy to yeah. identify, going to find them at home. So I'm with Mike. I think it's more... Yeah. Uh, it's the elderly people, yeah. It's too hard to track. I mean, when I was a student, we lived in a house in Bath which, which had a, um, a, a an electricity meter in the basement. And if the, if the electricity went off and we were up two flights up, nobody could, could be bothered to go down. So we just sit there in the dark. <laughs> just sit there in the dark because nobody could be bothered to get out of the chair. I reckon you'd have been a nightmare to live with as a student. Probably. There are a lot easier ways for the BBC to enforce it. At the moment, all you have to do is say, I have a licence fee, check, yeah. and it lets you in. There's ways that you could have an account where you register your licence number yeah. and then it lets you in in a way... Same way you have Netflix or other accounts yeah. that paid for. I mean, it does so ask you that, doesn't it? When you, make it more difficult. When you're on the iPlayer and it says, do you have a TV licence? I wonder if you're just lying. The, the, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Oh, but there's a good reason. The BBC don't want that policy that Sophia has very sensibly suggested because it opens whole cans of worms. Once it's sort of, OK, well, here's my licence fee number, let me on. The next thing will be, well, I don't actually want those TV shows. Right. You know, I haven't got kids. So I don't need the CBBS mm. channel. Right. So I just want to buy these ones. And as soon as they open that floodgate, which I wish they would, uh, you'll get BBC yeah. a la carte. 
you'll be able to buy certain programs that you like and switch off those that you don't, just as you can with most major sports packages, right? Yeah. You, can you get can't Sky do that with Netflix. You buy the whole thing or nothing at all. There's yeah, a lot that but, I'd like to switch off. That. Yeah, but, there, but, there's a, there, but there's a limit to the number of people that can access it, though, because, you know, with the house, households thing, it's always a nightmare because you get a new device and suddenly they're going, is this your household? But I bet you Netflix will somebody. move to premium and things like, if you want to watch the show on the night that it comes out, it will be an extra pound. The other thing you're all missing, a couple of weeks. there's nothing on BBC worth watching. Is well, that? that might be true, but the market... Can you name a show that you watch for the BBC? A Traitors. Oh, everybody talks about it. The weather? I've not seen it. No, the weather... No, don't look at the weather. Oh, it's because, been great no, fun. It's red, it's orange, you're going to die in a terrible... <laughs> but you will always no. see a weatherman no. standing by the sea telling people not to stand by the sea. Well, don't worry, the, last, the, the, the weather guy flew to Alicante to tell us it was hot in Spain Beautiful. last summer. Anyway, never mind. Um, we've got more to come. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, we'll take another look at another royal who's gone public with a tragic diagnosis. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Sarah Ferguson has announced that she's been diagnosed with an aggressive form of skin cancer in another shocking health update from the royal family. It's her second cancer diagnosis within a year, having had a mastectomy last summer after being diagnosed with breast cancer. But also, uh, tonight, we've got the front page of The Sun with us, where uh, Camilla has offered advice to the workaholic king, Charles, and the advice is, slow down. Please, joining me to discuss all of this is the Royal Editor, Mr Robert Jobson. Robert, welcome uh, back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Um, interesting, on the front page of The Sun, let's start with, with Charles. Um, inside it says, 516 jobs in 2023, age 75. Camilla fears Charles is working too hard, effectively. Yeah, it's not just the jobs. I mean, he does... Um... He's sort of always working on his papers till late at night. Yeah. He is a bit of a workaholic. I've heard he's a workaholic. Yeah, he'll have his dinner and then go back to work. I mean, you know, it was that great line, wasn't there, by Harry, dare we speak, he was saying that when he was a kid, he used to find his dad asleep with the yeah. post right. stuck on his yes. head. Well, I think that is true. You know, he does he does take it very seriously. He goes into the finite detail of everything. But we must remember he's 76 next birthday. Yes. And uh, you've got to listen to your body, you know. And I don't. I think that so that's probably all that Camilla's saying is listen. Yes. You know, you know, one's and he's got his, no one's his indestructible. No, of course, and he's got his his own um, health problem to sort out. Later this week, he's going to go and yeah. have his enlarged prostate sorted out, um, which will be a relatively straightforward operation, won't it? We we hope so. We think so. Yeah. And the way they've dressed it is yeah. that's what they're saying. You know, by by announcing it early, it takes away a lot of the, the, the stress. But if this had been a few years ago, the Queen going to the hospital, you know, you know, it was always a sure. big deal. Absolutely. So the head of state going in, staying overnight. It's a big deal, you yes. know, and I think that we shouldn't just, you know, shouldn't just assume that everything will be fine. We should just yeah. be hoping that it is. And again, as we spoke about last week, you know, with, with Kate also in hospital and probably not really yeah. able to do much until, as the Princess of Wales, after Easter, uh, sometime near beginning of April, you know, there's there's a big gap here in terms of who can do what and, well, and when it can be done. going to slow down as well. William's going to have to be looking out. He's, going to, he's got a young family. He's going to be looking after Kate. When she comes out, I think they're going to rely a lot on um, on the Queen. It was, yeah. I was out with the Queen today. She was uh, in Swindon at a, a refuge for um, abuse. Yeah. But you know, it, it's. I think that the most important thing is that the key, uh, the Constitution, continues, and yes. that'll be done by, you know, by the, the whoever steps in for the King, which will right. be 
be William. I mean, obviously, it'd be quite a year this year in terms of sort of state occasions, won't it? But, I mean, you'll have to do, you would imagine, the state opening of Parliament, which which you'll want to do. Yeah. Um, what can he cut if, if, if he has to cut things? I think it's probably the way that he does organise himself a yeah. little bit. Maybe um, less of the going into the finite detail of everything. I think that's what he's, he's somebody that can't right. leave it alone. Um, you know, he's, he's, got, he's always right. He, he writes, he's agonises over his, yes. his speeches. He wants to make a difference in the time he is king. We've mm. said that when we discussed him going to COP28. So yeah. I just think that maybe just, they're just saying, look, just you know, take your foot off the gas mm. a little bit and um, don't expect to be doing, you know, 18-hour days, which no. he does. And he'll need to recuperate a little bit, no matter what how, how small the operation is that he's having. You know, any operation takes it out of you, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think he's had an issue with this um, for a while, but the, the reality the reality is is that, um, you know, he's somebody I think who will listen to Camilla. She's a sensible lady. He's done... I mean, we're talking about people might sell 516 jobs in, in a year. That's not many. It's what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, what else he's doing? You know, he's doing all sorts of things. It's more than I've done. That. I mean, you know, <laughs> and well I'm substantially younger than he is. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, a little bit in the sun tonight about Carol and Michael Middleton comforting their three grandchildren at the weekend as they face another 10 days without their mother. That can't be easy for them either. No, I mean, we, we forget the human beings half the time. But yeah. The reality is I think Carol and Mike are good people. They live just down the, down the M4. Yeah. So they're very much in the lives of these kids. So, you know, having grandma around and granddad around is always a good thing. You know, they get away with... Right. Get away with... I'm know, sure they do, sweets yeah. and Although I imagine you can't really be spoiled by your grandparents if your other grandparents are the king and queen. Can you? I reckon that they're probably the ones that do spoil. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you, know, they, you know, they get the chocolates and, you know, Charles will come on with an organic bar or yes, something. Yes, you know? <laughs> some cheese. What about uh, the situation with Sarah Ferguson? She says she's blessed, getting a lot of support, and a lot of people have been very nice to her over the course of, you know, the last 24 hours or so, media-wise, you know, um, everyone so they should, has, yeah. a, has a yeah. story to tell about what a great woman she is. You know, I, I years ago, like you, um, was in America and, and, and met her on a couple of trips there. And she was always good fun. She always you know, got along with everybody pretty well. And I think most people think of quite well of her, don't they? They do. I mean, there were a few trolls typically yeah. as we see them all. But, you know, Sarah's a nice person. She's yeah. somebody I think that's been um, supportive of a family in a difficult time. And, yeah. um, you know, she was always, she's always very, uh, always, you know, always very welcome, always very open and honest. And she's had, had a bit of a roller coaster life. Yeah. But she always seems to sort of keep going. So she does. Let's just just hope that everything will be all right this time. Yeah, I mean, I remember being in Houston with her, and she'd flown out from London, and she were we were at NASA. I don't know if you were on that trip. I can't remember. Um, and she was describing how um, the plane got struck by lightning as it was leaving Heathrow, and of course, you know, the um, the aide was going, "Yeah, but it's very, very doesn't matter at all because, of course, you know, planes get struck by lightning all the time." And just as he said it, this guy from NASA walked behind him and was like, "Oh yeah, we had a plane struck by lightning. It got blown right out of the sky." <laughs> <laughs> I bet and he course, high on that it one. It was a splash yeah. Yeah, not the, the next day. No, but she's good. I mean, I remember skiing, you know, years ago, you know, in wherever it was, Verbiers, Clusters um, or somewhere. Lek, I think it yeah. was. And she she was sitting at the table to invite me over to have a a chat. She, she's a good person, and mm. I think that. Actually, she's been treated quite badly over the years, but she's um, she's back in the fold now. She was she was there up at Sandringham at Christmas with Andrew, yeah. and she was she's put, gets on well with Camilla, the Queen, and Charles. So look, I, I think uh, let's just hope and pray that she's okay. Yeah. Should we mention Harry and his dodgy German prince mate who got a selfie with him last week? You have to. <laughs> I'd rather not. But I mean, I mean, I did say at the time I put it on Twitter. Is this, is, this is, is this is what he's down to now? 
I, I, I'm the king of trash I think TV. It's quite sad because if you actually look at what's going on with the monarchy at the moment, the royal family, they do need um, the more numbers. They could I think do the with king, some help, I mean, couldn't they? The king, I mean, William and the king could do some backup. Harry was always very popular when he was uh, when he was doing his royal engagements. Yeah. He was always seen as a breath of fresh air, and he's sort of blown it. Really. Yeah. I mean, completely. There's no way back for him now. No. But, um, and if he was still here, up. they could have had quite a senior role, couldn't they? Yeah, absolutely. No, they would have had a very yeah. senior role. And he, and he was, I mean, I covered a load of the trips with him and, and, and he was always very, you know, diligent, got on mm. with it and everyone liked him. It just seems a bit of a shame. I just don't, you know, picking up awards for being an agent of aviation does seem ridiculous. Like, you know, just ridiculous. Yeah. And do you buy this idea that they've sent private um, sort of messages? Look, I think the word was they reached out you can reach out, but it doesn't mean the other person is going to catch the message. No, no, that's what I thought. <laughs> Interesting. Very good. Robert, thank you very much indeed. Robert Johnson, Royal Editor there, uh, with the latest news on the King. He's being told he should slow down. Let's go over to Hollywood now, though, because over in celebrity land, we're not going to talk about Harry and Meghan. We're going to talk about another uh, superstar uh, of uh, stage and screen, Reese Weatherspoon. Now, she apparently uh, has been eating snow and been getting an awful lot of flack for it. Have a look at this. Okay, so we got a ton of snow over the past few days. We decided to make a recipe. So first we scooped the snow into cups and we added salted caramel syrup and some chocolate syrup, just because we like how they taste together. And we put it on top. And then we decided to add some cold brew just to have a yummy coffee flavor. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Okay, I know what to call it. A salted snowy cappuccino <laughs> a snow salt chococino must be great wasn't it eh? they go out in the backyard scoop up some snow taste it put out a video get hammered for it by everybody because we now live in a place where people are going you can't do that it's really dangerous i mean there's been some incredible um, reaction to all of that. We're going to come back to that because I'm joined now by the panel once more, Deputy Policy Director of the Centre for Social Justice, Sophia Warringer, comedian and broadcaster Dave Chawner, and of course, uh, Economic Fellow and Senior Economic Fellow, I should say, at the Institute of Economic Affairs, Mark, Mark Littlewood. I mean, the amount of people getting worked up about the snow have actually been posting things to us saying, you know, we used to, you know, drink water out of a, a tap and sometimes in the summer we'd, we'd even drink water out of a hose and, you know, I'm pretty sure... Um, it's okay to eat snow. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's yeah. There? I've, I've always been, obviously, be worried about the yellow snow. Yes. That's what I mean, they that's would say. come up a lot. Oh, okay. yeah. what, what, what's dangerous about snow? Watch out where the huskies don't go and don't you eat that yellow snow. If you can name me the person that wrote that word, I'll give you a special prize. Wilfred Owen. Frank Zappa. Wow. <laughs> very <laughs> yeah. similar characters. Very, very similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. absolutely. I like this pub quiz vibe. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? Well, this is what do we're doing. Again. Well, I like to ask you questions because I know you don't know very much. So no, big time. What's but the no, only mammal that doesn't have vocal cords? The only mammal that doesn't have vocal cords? Um, I don't know, a whale? Giraffe. Oh. Really? What a waste of a neck. Yeah, it is. Well, maybe that's why, because they'd be too big. Maybe. How do you know they haven't got vocal cords? Maybe you just met one that had lost its voice. Yeah, big time. We were chatting in the bar. Just to you. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've yes. gone from uh, eating snow to um, non-talking giraffes. Ever eaten snow? Yeah, probably. Oh. Have you? It's not a problem. It's really not. No. I mean, have you eaten it while you've gone down the the, um, the, the the ski run on your stomach, you know, after falling? I've done that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, can you ski? Yeah, of course. I thought better of you. Why? I don't. I, I don't go skiing, but I can right. ski. 
you know. It does. It I've got children, you know, they like skiing. So I've had to take various different generations of them skiing. Best, best thing to do is night skiing um, in Connecticut where you can drink vodka and eat uh, chicken wings with blue cheese sauce. Now, everything about now, drinking culture. Yeah, yeah, um, um, absolutely. No, exactly. I, I just, I, I, no, I can't get on board with the skiing. Yeah, OK. Well, I mean, people have been saying, because we're now living in this ridiculously kind of, you know, warped world where people need to be protected from everything, loads of people have been saying that Reese Witherspoon is being uh, irresponsible because of all the nutrients that will be killed out of the snow and all of the poison yeah, and the toxins right. that will be in the snow because of all the pollution. She scraped it off her car, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say this is, like, the healthiest thing you can do, but, I mean, talk about the definition of a first-world problem, yeah. right? Reese Witherspoon eating snow. I mean, to even Almost think of entirely making harmless. a coffee-based drink out of it yeah. as well. And I mean, also, not not to be mean, I'm sure Reese doesn't do this, but a lot of people will have injected much more dangerous substances into their face. Probably. Than, than I'm not that. saying we're not saying she's done that. I'm, I'm absolutely. I want to make it. No, categorical. I'm that not would be saying very, she's doing very that. Wrong. But I'm just saying. Also, do you know? Here's something else you don't know. That the, the trendy mm. drink this winter has been a snowball martini. Is that right? So you could have made one with real snow. That, that, What's that? that? What's in a snowball martini? Snowball martini is like a snowball, which is basically coconut milk, coconut yeah. sort of cream. Isn't it Advocar? Um No, that's yellow. It's yeah, but I, I thought a snowball was yellow. No, it's Wasn't not. Wasn't it a bar in Dubai importing ice from the Arctic That's right, they're, well. they're, they're importing ice from the Arctic. The yeah, tip, see, so a lot of knowledge on this panel. Brilliant. Should we look at some front the big pages? issues of the day? Love While it, we're yeah. at it, um, we've got... Um, let's see, we've spoken about the king already, but um, here's one on the front page of the Times. Swearing is neither big nor clever, but if you're a parrot, it can be catchy. Apparently, Lincolnshire <laughs> Wildlife Park is reintroducing problem parrots to the flock in the hope that the swearing will be drowned out by the others. What do you make of that? I mean, if you're in the habit of swearing a lot, I suppose if you go into company who are not used to it... It's, it's, it it's even more upsetting. shocking than Reese Witherspoon eating snow. It yeah. is, isn't it? Parrots Listen, swearing. don't say we don't, we don't shy away from the big subjects <laughs> yeah, the here big the stories of the Republic. Um, I think this is Lincolnshire Wildlife Park having a very natty way of marketing mm. because I want to go there now. If I get to see a swearing parrot, bam, I'm in there. Yeah, uh, they've, they've removed five African greys called Billy, Tyson, Eric, Jaden. Well, it's the names, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you give them names like that, they're going to swear. Yeah. I mean, those are pit bull At names, least that they? sounds quite genteel. <laughs> That's what you would yeah. call a pit bull. Tyson. You know, Elsie. I suppose Elsie sounds all right. Uh, Elsie sounds all right. Yeah. A hundred swearing parrots at this park, says it's chief exasper. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I, I want to go now. I think yeah. this is great. Yeah. I think we should encourage this. Yeah, well, I think we need to send um, our roving reporter, Nick Ellaby, to the swearing parrots and get him to do an exclusive yeah. report. The home of free speech on. goes to the home of free speech. Yes. That's a good idea. Right. Um, let me ask you about what we talked about at the top of the hour, which is um, Labour is too nostalgic about the NHS, according to Wes Streeting, setting himself apart um, from uh, Keir Starmer, who never tires of telling us that he comes from a, an NHS family. And we need to celebrate it. It's all And we cannot in any way, shape or form ever criticise it because it's so brilliant. Yeah. And, his, and his, I think his wife is an NHS lawyer, so she's not really in the NHS. She's just making money out of it. Um, and I think his mother was a nurse, wasn't she? That's right. Yeah. But look, you mentioned Wes Treating early in the programme, Mark. It's quite interesting here because at, at least, uh, and I've read his interview with Harry Cole in The Sun, yeah. uh, at least we've got a Labour uh, Shadow Health Secretary who is willing to call out that not is all wonderful 
in right. the NHS. And crucially, it's not just a question of throwing more money at it. Mm. But there's some systemic failures here that just are not working. In fact, he compares it uh, to being less tech-savvy than his local barbershop. Right. He notes that his barbershop sends him a text saying, we tried to reach you by phone to confirm your haircut. If you don't text back to reply yes by 5pm, we'll be cancelling your appointment. Why can't the NHS do that? But what he doesn't address mm. is why can't the NHS do that? And it is because it is a monumental bureaucracy. There are no sort of feedback loops. Yeah. Is local barbers competing with another barber? You've got to keep on it, on it all the time to retain yeah. with Streeting's business. When you're running a monopoly that now employs 1.3 million staff, I think it's now the biggest employer in the world, mm. uh, if not pretty close, then I'm afraid there isn't that sort of innovation. There aren't those no. feedback loops. It's not There's agile not pressure and decision-making at local level no. to improve something. So for great on analysis, we're streeting, not quite sure what his prescription is. Mm. But this is something the Conservative Party should have been saying all the time they're in power, and it's taking a Labour politician of True. anyone yeah. to be making this well-needed critique of the NHS. Yes. And he's comparing it here to a leaky bucket. Yes. Maybe I wouldn't quite go that well, far. Well, the Tories again have... The of, idea yeah. of it not... Um, you're just pouring more mm. money in without actually reforming... But the, the Tories system. have... Ever since, ever since Theresa May tried to lose the tag of the nasty party, they've been terrified, the Tories, of ever criticising the NHS because all they would get from the Labour side was, oh, you're trying to sell it off. He's just trying to privatise it. That's why he's saying it's rubbish. No, we're saying it's rubbish because it is rubbish. Exactly, and this nostalgia is so important because what people are remembering are not is not actually the NHS of today, no. which is falling behind in international standards right. and really failing to deliver the healthcare that this country needs. They are remembering the NHS of kind of 30, 40 years yeah. ago, which had a lot smaller remit, a smaller population, a healthier population, yeah. a younger population, and it could keep up with the demands placed on it. Yeah. But the NHS, NHS of today sadly can't do mm. that. But during COVID, they were quite good at messaging people, weren't they? I mean, I used to get messages from my GPs all the time. Did you? Go and get COVID jab for this and COVID jab for that. And, you know, I get text messages. Really, you know, they sent me one text message saying that I understood I was still smoking five years after I'd given up. You know, saying that... I think so you get a lot of text messages, but they're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Because they were being paid per jab, so they're very keen to get Yeah, that's in. probably what it was. So they can do it in some parts of, of, of the industry. Well, when there's to. an incentive. When there's yeah. a financial incentive, there's you'll a find people thing. get their finger out. Can you, I just... You, for, for balance, yes. do you still why do you, smoke? Why do you want balance? Do you, do you <laughs> still smoke? with you? No. <laughs> no, there you go. Well, the, the, the text work. You're no well, longer no, smoking. No, I think that's... I didn't smoke for five years. I'd already given up by the time they sent me the text to say they were still smoking. You know why they sent me a text? Drive. Because they get money for everyone that they persuade to give up. Yeah. So the same principle applies. Yeah. They thought they'd make some money out of me, so they texted me uh, at my expense, charged me for the text to ask me if I was still smoking uh, when I wasn't. I think that's a nice scheme. I want to cut that. I'll yeah. start smoking so that they can text me and we'll do 50-50. Yeah. Trouble is you'll spend more smoking than you will actually getting Mate, the money on the back. how much? I saw someone buy a pack of 10 fags the other day and it was like, yeah, it was, I think it was like 11 quid. Yeah. That's why there are black market cigarettes for people who don't want to spend that kind of money. Yeah. Really? Sorry to break this news. Yeah, it's huge. Black market is. cigarettes, absolutely. But I think, can we... can we... buy a pack for three quid around the back of Bermondsey Market. Yeah. But, but but you still don't look as much of a loser than you do if you vape. 
I, well, that's I a whole wanna, other story. That's I another story. I want to ban vaping. I've got nothing against vaping. I do, big time. And it's not it's not health grounds. It's you just, know Mark listen with vapes, don't you? Do you? Oh, <laughs> Mark. Please tell me you don't vape like jelly baby flavour. No, no, no. I do object to that. I the one I use is as close to tobacco flavour as possible. Yeah. Nice. Not blueberry muffin. Good. Or oh, OK. Yeah. Anyway, Proper we've got to stop for a while because there's <laughs> things to do. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Coming up after the break, uh, I'll be ranting about some more eco nonsense. A primary school that's been shut down six times as part of a green initiative. That'll teach them. The trust in charge of running the school described the incident as teething problems. Probably the understatement of the bloody year. Stay tuned. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. You ever get the feeling that someone is on a giant wind-up with this whole net zero madness that we're afflicted with in this day and age? We're told not to fly, not to use washing machines, not to drive, not to own wood-burning stoves, and to change over all of our energy sources to renewables, if necessary, by facing fines if we don't. But they never talk about the cost, do they? And I'm not just talking about the eco-zealots and the climate nutters out there. I'm talking about the politicians selling this nightmare to us all. Labour said they would spend £28 billion a year on renewable energy. They say they want to decarbonise the electricity network by 2030. The Tories famously wanted to get rid of all petrol and diesel cars by the same date. But now they've actually looked at the details and the cost, they've realised it can't be done. But here's something that even I didn't know. This government has been handing out millions of pounds to schools so that they can replace traditional electricity and gas heating systems with the dreaded heat pump. Trouble is, of course, they don't work. Well, I could have told them that. King's North Primary School in Ashford in Kent has been forced to close for the sixth time in three months because they have no electricity thanks to the useless heat pump system installed last summer as part of an initiative to help schools cut their carbon footprint. Exasperated parents are furious that they have to keep finding childcare because the school is incapable of feeding the kids or looking after them. Incredibly, it all went wrong when the Akia Diocese of Canterbury Academy's Trust, which runs 16 schools in Kent, commissioned four of the heat pumps as part of the, wait for it, government's public sector decarbonisation scheme. It cost us, the taxpayers, 358,000 quid. But that's just the tip of the iceberg which you can find inside the school kitchen, of course, now that it's that cold. <laughs> Another £1 million went to systems at three other schools in the county, all of which have suffered teething problems since the beginning. What an utter betrayal of the children and their parents who were never asked if decarbonisation was something they wanted above education. The school trust apologised for the closures and promised to rectify this ludicrous situation. Here's what they said. We apologise for the inconvenience and disruption caused to pupils and families. Our priority has always been to keep King's North open. But there have been occasions where we have had no choice but to close due to a complete failure of the heating system, electrical power issues and the associated wider safety concerns. They say they've got engineers on site fixing the problem and that, you've guessed it, they're planning to install, in their words, an additional power source this week. Brilliant. So the government decarbonisation plan now includes a diesel generator. You literally couldn't make it up because that is the world of woke. Now the panel is back with me and we're taking a look 
and all the headlines in the papers tomorrow. But, I mean, I've got to get your, um, your response to that ridiculous situation. I mean, if they're doing it in Kent, literally about 1.3 million in four schools, some of them has paid 500,000 for these heat pumps, and they don't work. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. And it's another, it's another example of a top-down solution, yeah. isn't it? But I'm, I'm not against clean energy, per se, or decarbonisation, but once you have these schemes and this addiction to a particular type of technology yeah. selected by some centralised bureaucrat be or politician, this, uh, these sort of disasters inevitably follow. Shocking, isn't it? It would be laughable. I think it almost is laughable, apart from the fact that those kids are now not in school again, right. and they've missed maybe uh, weeks and months yeah. Their schooling from the pandemic. Maybe some of them haven't even returned to school. We know 140,000 yeah. kids haven't come back to school right. after the pandemic. They're out more than they're in. And yet there's here more days that they're missing because of some policy which yeah. could be avoided. And education is what they're near. And now they're they're have... loving it. Well, they but might be. They may be right then. Day. They love it. But you know you fall behind in your <laughs> the, the, par the parents aren't loving it, no. right? Oh, well, that's, yeah. The yeah, parents are having to take time off school and now there's diesel generators, you know, making the atmosphere worse. Everybody's getting dying of pollution. It's a shocking state of affairs. Let's talk about the Telegraph. Front page, uh, Carrie Badenoch to intervene in gender yeah. pay trans row. Um, now, this is civil servants, apparently, who have told employers to collect gender pay gap figures based on how their workers identify rather than un as their biological sex. So if Chawner goes and works somewhere and decides to identify as a woman, you'll be listed as part of the gender pay gap as a woman. What's, what's that all about? Well, it's a good thing that the minister is looking into this. And Thank the goodness. civil servants are not calling the shots on this because mm. it is unfair if the reality of what is true is not being reported right. in the data and people look to data as the overall and they use it as a bible don't they they go oh but we've got the data exactly and, and the data quite often is rubbish repeating what goes on in real life and that's a concern yeah absolutely right but i mean this is the other thing that uh, all of these ridiculous sort of studies do the gender pay gap has never made any sense really has no. it because you can't compare apples and oranges at the end of the day. I'll, I'll tell you what, on this, Mike, I mean, it shouldn't be collected at all, in my view. No. Right? I mean, uh, and it's every company above 250 employees, I think. And I can remember when this came in, and I kind of thought, well, it's going to be pretty obvious where, you know, some of the massive gaps are going to be. What's going to happen when a Premier League football club reports what typical men are earning compared yeah. to typical women. Right. Now, obviously, those working in the ticket office will be about the same, but if you're being paid 200 grand a week to be a centre-forward, you know what happened? Some of the Premier League football clubs reported that they were paying women more because they what? filtered out the players and put them into a separate ah, company. Okay. So Arsenal Football Club, I think it was, right. Memory Serbs, came out and said, oh, no, Arsenal Football Club, women are paid more than men. So even if you Amazing. do this reporting, yeah. you end up with getting, you know, more, uh, you know, more chat. You can basically work. skew it any way you want, yeah. can't you? I mean, that is the problem with data. And unfortunately, it's called science now. And the problem is that they'll, it's also a burden on companies. I mean, OK, if you're going to do gender, are we going to do every different uh, racial grouping? You'll have to. Uh, different religious groupings, uh, sexual orientation, height, weight. What? Where, yeah. I mean, well, according to the school end. system, you'll have to do 72 genders 70, yeah, on the gender pay gap front. So that's a lot of gaps. Quite a spreadsheet in the HR department. It really is. That'll keep them busy. Yeah. I mean, no wonder they don't get anything done in the civil service. <laughs> um, finally, critical risk to us, 50,000 companies. This is as taxes pile pressure on the economy... 50,000 companies are close to failure. Mark, you'll know about this. Yeah, this is, I mean, obviously bad news are, are on the face of it. Close to failure. Uh, interest rates are returning to normal. The tax burden on companies is too high. And, of course, I think we, we heard in the last few days, isn't it? Energy 
costs for a British company are yeah. you know, massively higher than in the USA. So on the face of it, bad news. I would say this, though, that um, although you can't look at a business and say, I hope you go bust, a problem in the UK economy has been we've had too many zombie companies, yeah. not enough companies folding and new ones opening. And that in part was because interest rates were so yeah. low. So you could sort of just survive. And actually what you want in a successful vibrant economy is lots of things opening, but lots of things that aren't working closing down yeah. as well. So uh, that sounds like a very economist rather than human way of looking at it. But the tax and the regulation that is imposed on companies, well, let's ease that. Yeah. But let's not be surprised when companies go bust and new ones emerge. That's yeah. all part of the economy growing. It's the only, yeah. pretty much the only way you can grow it. I want to work for a zombie company. Yeah, I thought you were going to do it. Many people. I thought did. that was how you got here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, my Token is zombie DNA. company representative. Yes. Thank you very much indeed. That's all from me tonight. You've been watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Thank you to all of my glorious guests. I'll see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Talk TV. Good night. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.